It's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today we are joined by John DeMyth, D-Man, D-Legend, D-Rosa. He's returning to us to tell us about Adam and Eve. He's written an article that I've shared pretty widely and has helped a number of people. You can find it at Peaceful Science. If you search John DeRosa or Adam and Eve, it will come up. It's a survey of the different positions that a Catholic can hold, which are consistent with both science and what the church teaches. Welcome back to the podcast, John. Jake, thanks for having me on. It's, it's always a pleasure to be on, and I, I liked having you on my show to talk about some philosophy in the fourth way of St. Thomas Aquinas, and it's good to be back talking about science, Adam and Eve, and it's an important topic. Oh, I, I am always game for talking about the fourth way. It seems to bubble up in about half of all episodes, irrespective of the topic that I'm seeking to speak about. So, yes. <laughs> Well, let's see. Well, I figured we would frame this a little bit by um, by talking about the disappointment that's so often experienced, particularly by young people, when when they find out that the exact narrative laid out in the early chapters of Genesis is not a literal um, literal description of history. Now, the church, of course, affirms that it is an account um, in figurative language that affirms a primeval event, a real one. Um, but it's not literal. So why do you think that is a disappointment? And what would you tell to uh, somebody, particularly a young person, who might be first um, confronted with the objection that this may not have been the exact play-by-play account that really happened? Yes, no, I think it's an important question, especially, and that's something I think we've done a bad job with as a church in educating young people about this. And it's something I've been thinking about a lot recently, Jake, where at least where I am in New Jersey, and I imagine other places where a lot of the Catholic students grow up going to public school, let's say, not and they don't have the benefit of a private school or homeschool situation that's more Catholic in character. And so they just go to the local public school and they do CCD on the side where they're taught their catechesis and they're taught, okay, this is what the church teaches. They're taught about God and Jesus and Ten Commandments and the Beatitudes and all these different lists and a piece of information and they prep for their sacraments and they're kind of just delivered a lot of information up until confirmation, which is usually in in my state, it's in around ninth grade. I know some states it's 10th grade, some states it's eighth. And then right after that, we kind of just dump them into the secular sphere when they have all of their, you know, all of their intellectual senses are more heightened. They get into a high school environment and they're asking a lot more philosophically and intellectually and theologically curious questions and CCD is done confirmation catechesis is done what does the local church offer those young young adults or young teenagers maybe there's a youth group that a small subset of them will attend which which can be very good but as far as education and catechesis they're dumped into a high school classroom typically in a public school in New Jersey and that's when they have their most questions about the faith. And so I kind of see this as a big problem because yes, okay, they've learned growing up, whether they learn about baptism, whether they learn about confirmation, things are always taken back to Adam and Eve. And they're taught about the grace that our first parents lost and that we now are now born deprived of, which we can talk about later with original sin. And they're just presented with this story. They're not necessarily presented with any kind of rigorous way of how to read Genesis or how the church understands it. They're just kind of told some facts about Adam and Eve and some facts about the sacraments and they get ready and hopefully prayerfully receive those sacraments, which is great. But then they get into that ninth grade biology class 
And one of the things I quote from in this article is the next generation science standards, which is used by many public schools across the country. And they're just given information about evolution. And they're told there was no, maybe a bold biology teacher says, well, there, there was no original human couple, you know, life evolved over millions of years. And there were maybe thousands of individuals at the beginning of our race. But that stuff that you were taught in CCD and that you were taught, you know, just told to believe and not given reasons for, that's just a bunch of hooey. And these students get very confused. And so what I think we need to do a better job of is connecting um, apologetically and theologically with the middle school and the high school age students, precisely the points where they're going to face conflict in school, like think they're going to learn about the Crusades, they're going to learn about evolution, they're going to learn about the Inquisition, they're going to learn about Galileo, precisely those points where we know they're going to learn things that are going to cause them cognitive dissonance if they don't know how to square them with what their religion believes, we need to teach them the reconciliations. So I would say that's that's kind of a long starting point. So I would say we've done a bad job at that. But so, so that's when the kids get upset when they go back and they maybe they ask an intelligent priest, um, you know, hey, wait a minute, I learned about evolution. And I was just taught Adam and Eve as a kid. So I don't know which to pick. Do I pick science or do I pick the Bible? And maybe an intelligent priest like we had at the College of New Jersey says, oh, no, you don't have to choose between either of those. They can be made compatible. And the student at that point gets frustrated because they were never told that before. They were never told there's an alternative way to understand these early chapters of the scriptures. I'll tell you something else, Jake, and I know I'm, I'm going on for a while here, but oh, we'll go for it. into the details. I, even, I was not even thinking about this until about a year ago when Michael Gormley brought it up on my show. But Genesis is a prequel. Who's the author of Genesis? Traditionally understood. Who wrote Genesis? Moses. Moses is traditionally the author. So if Moses is the author of Genesis, remember, where does Moses, you know, come into contact with God? We have the story in Exodus of the burning bush and the Hebrew people being taken out of slavery, led by Moses, led by God. And then they wander around in the wilderness and they get the Ten Commandments and all this incredible stuff happens. But that guy, Moses, is the one who's credited with the authorship, the traditional authorship of Genesis. So the tradition goes back to him. So all of that stuff happened in Exodus, and then Genesis is a prequel. It's not like he's using a time recording, tape recording device. Moses wasn't there when God made the world. And so we can get into questions of genre and the main ideas that he was trying to get across in those early chapters, that we worship a God who is the transcendent creator, who made everything, that there's not a lot of little finite gods or some random chaos out of which different parts of the world spawn other creation myths that are found in different kinds of pagan cultures around the Jews. We, we, they don't buy that. They say, no, there's one single transcendent creator. He's responsible for all of it. That's the main big idea. And by the way, humans are at the pinnacle. That's at the top. At the end of six days, God makes human beings who are special in his image and likeness. And then after that, there was a fall. Those big ideas that God made everything, that humans are at the center, that he wanted friendship with them, and that there was a big fall. Those four big main ideas can get conveyed with a number of things that include figurative language, poetry, and so forth. And so I think we need to do a much better job of telling our young people that so they don't just get blindsided in high school and college classrooms. But I'll pause there, Jake, because I know that's a lot of framing remarks. Sure. No, I, I completely I completely support that. So often we learn religion with the mind of a child. 
Then we come back and criticize it once our mind has become adult. Yes. And that is so profoundly unfair to the religion which has stretched back for thousands of years and occupied the greatest minds the world has ever seen, the Thomas Aquinas's, etc. They learned with an adult mind. They didn't stop at CCD. They didn't stop at being a child. Um, we have adult answers to our adult questions. And if only that was, uh, that was better known. I, I completely agree. So I, I think we got to start doing that. And we can point to clues in the text. You know, if people are like, well, hey, wait a minute, how do you know for sure that this isn't, you know, a literal historical account? I mean, you can go to the the academics for all the the, the, the minute details. But just one thing that gets pointed out a lot, Jimmy Aiken pointed it out on my show, is that, well, the Jews understood that the uh, the sun and the moon conveyed a 24 hour time period and helped them track a day. Yet in the Genesis account, we have the sun and the moon not being created until the third day. But there was evening and morning well before that. That's just one possible clue that this, these aren't meant to be taken as literal uh, six 24-hour days. And you can look at other things, the meter of the text, the various poetic devices, which I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but pretty much there's a lot of agreement that Genesis 1 through 11, that's kind of where the marker is. That's what the uh, ascension uh, Bible in a Year program recommends. They kind of call that the early world, the proto-history, if you will. That is an account of creation that gets at real things that happen, but it does so in a very interpretive way, a very poetic way that's not meant to be a historical retelling by our own standards. And then when God calls Abraham and we start following the trajectory of the patriarchs from there, that takes on a more historical character. And then you have to go into individual books of the Old Testament to kind of adjudicate, okay, what genre is this here? But I think the more we teach that to, to people at a younger age, the better off we're going to be. And, and it's silly because I was just listening to something else, Jake, the other day, like Bill Maher and a lot of the new atheists, they just gain so much currency. by Once you say this answer of, well, you know, we don't take Genesis as a uh, a literalistic historical retelling of what they said. And then Bill Maher will come back and he'll say, oh, so basically you're saying parts of the Bible you're just allowed to think are BS. And we're like, well, no, we just think there's value in things that aren't told in that genre. I wouldn't say Hamlet is BS. I wouldn't say Romeo and Juliet is BS. And, and pardon the phrase, that's just literally what he says in one of the quotes that I've heard and seen on the internet. But the point is, we have a library of books in the Bible that give us a rich history of what happened. They give us a rich poetic insight into the human character. They give us novellas and short stories. They give us all kinds of stuff, didactic, just teaching and laying out laws. I mean, there's just so much there that to dismiss it as either it's a literal historical retelling, according to our standards, or it's just made up. It's just a silly dichotomy. So, yes, let's teach the young people that. And hopefully at today's show, we can get into more of that compatibility to show how modern science and our beliefs in a strong tradition of Adam and Eve can work together. I was trying to think of a good example to, to bring up something which is true and not literal and certainly not BS. And let me run something by you. You teach math, right? Yes. Do you ever teach uh, any physics equations? Yes, we do vertical motion. We do different kinds of things like that. Yes. And have you ever told your students, okay, for the purpose of solving this equation, I need you to ignore friction? Absolutely. And wait a minute, isn't there friction in every single actual interaction 
uh, in classical physics, almost with no exceptions, unless you're like somewhere in deep, dark space. Yes. So is it just BS what you're teaching those students because you it, you're not actually teaching them something literal? You're teaching them something abstract and mm. universal. Is that just a bunch of BS what you mm. taught them? I would hope not. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's it's in fact the opposite. It's it's universally applicable. We're not talking about one individual ball which hits another one and relays motion. Who cares about one particular time that that happened? That's one type of knowledge and it's all well and good and it can be literal, etc., whatever. But if you know the universal movement when one thing strikes the next and you can understand the equation behind it, that gives you an insight into the whole universe. So when I read uh, the early chapters of Genesis, I don't see physical equations, but I see spiritual equations. Mm. What happens when we disobey? What happens when we hide from God? What happens when we uh, grasp things out of envy? What happens when we, uh, you know, what's the role of work as penance? Uh, what's the role of work when we're in line with uh, with God's plan for us and communion with him and neighbor? Um, what's our role vis-a-vis -vis nature? Um, all of those things are deep, profound, spiritual, um, communal uh, questions, which which we need universal equations for. Yes. And, I, and that's what it gives. No, I think that's a great point. I was going to give a, another example that I've heard of recently, but it, well, actually what you're saying, I, I just love it. It gets at why I think scientism is so silly as well. Um, because when I read or learn about Shakespeare, which I appreciated a little bit in high school. And then when I was taught about it by a good teacher, I was like, wow, this is profound stuff. No one opens those pages and says, well, this is silly because Shakespeare's not running enough empirical experiments. In Act Three. <laughs> yeah. they, they recognize that there's things that are um, specific to the genre that convey the teaching of timeless truths of important themes that we need to learn and get at things that are about our person like you were saying with genesis that are very important even if they're not done in a scientific manner even if they're not done in a literal historical manner and then i know you had dr john boyle on your show i love uh, who i had on my show as well he's a great guy scripture guy i did want to distinguish with him in mind because i know he would be yelling at us to distinguish well he wouldn't yell <laughs> he would say in his very nice kind way um there's the like traditional meaning of the word literal. And then there's like our modern jargon of how people take the term literal because the literal sense of scripture actually would include all the tools of language to try to uncover what the realities are that the sacred author was denoting by the words that he uses. What was he actually trying to say using all the tools of human language, which might include metaphors and poetry and so forth. Whereas in like a modern person, when they hear literal, they just mean um, like a wooden exact. Um, Reductionist. Reduction. Yeah. I'm trying to think of other words to say it, uh, what the phrase refers to not allowing a bigger meaning. So the, the classic thing, like true versus literal. If I said it's raining cats and dogs outside, I, if I meant so the modern person, if they were going to interpret that literally would mean they think, you know, puppies and kittens are falling to the ground from the sky. But I think I can mean that it, I could I could almost say it's literally raining cats and dogs outside. It's, it's kind of mixing the modern and the traditional notion. But here's what I'm getting at. If, if, if I say that to you, Jake, and it's not actually raining outside. Well, then what I've just said is false when I've said it's raining cats and dogs outside if it's a bright, sunny day. But if I say, man, it is really raining cats and dogs outside, and then you look outside and it's pouring, I've said something true. 
Now, in the modern sense, I've said it in a non-literal way. But in the traditional sense of the literal sense of the words, the literal sense is that, no, it actually really is raining really hard outside. That's the literal sense of, man, it is really raining cats and dogs. So I, long story short, I agree with you that we have to separate the truths conveyed from the style in which they are conveyed. And something can be true in one sense and non-literal in this modern reductionist sense and still important so i'll leave it there but i think that's an important point perfect i will as if we haven't thrown out enough explanations and analogies i will give the listeners one more and then we (laughs) jump into the theological guardrails that we we have in place given to us by the church but i've shared on this podcast a number of times this uh the example of the tortoise and the hare story what i didn't know until recently was that aesop from aesop's fables Mm -hmm. who first presented that was like he knew Aristotle and Plato. He was that far back. That's 2,500 years ago. Our, our culture after culture rose and fell. And that story passed. Wow. Yeah. Isn't I that didn't know that either. That's incredible. Yeah, that's incredible. That has been passed from, you know, parents to children for how many generations is that? A thousand generations? Just about 2,500 years, give or take. Um, incredible. Now, a literalistic reductionist story about that if we took just a literalistic in the modern um way of thinking uh, approach to that story we'd say well wait a minute was the hair faster than the tortoise or the tortoise fa- what what were their relative philosophies <laughs> who cares that is a story which has embedded deep truth which has been useful in a vast it it crossed continents right (laughs) that's how useful and important it was for us to remember and put into practice despite the fact that it was i'm sure it was not based on a literal event that's that's actually i'm glad you added that other example i know we're doing a lot of examples i'm glad you added that though because that shows that this is not just the thing that we do now this is something done in ancient times even outside of a religious context just passing along important morals and um, things that you know parents wanted their children to know and that was thousands of years ago with that 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 fable i just wanted to say you know the person who says like how fast was the tortoise running how fast was the hair running like dude you're just missing the point you're missing the point and i like i'm going to use that with young people because i think they'll understand that well let's jump into that theological stuff um you did an incredible uh, chart which i love it You, you were definitely very much like like teacher mode it's like clear organized color-coded um fantastic so you show what's in the theological green zone what's in the the yellow zone and what's in the red zone and you apply a few tests to the different theories that you look at so what are a few things that the church has said that we just have to hold um, with regards to adam and eve yes and just to, to kind of frame this for the listeners in the in the long article jake's talking about i I first lay out what the, the church says. You know, we still believe this about Adam and Eve. And then I lay out, here's what modern science says. And then I go through a bunch of ways to put them together. And that chart comes at the very end where I kind of rank them um, as best as I can judge is what fits with the different criteria. So if you listen to Bible in a year, if you listen to Catechism in a Year with Father Mike Schmitz, which I've actually started doing in 2023, it's great. You're already going to start to hear references to Adam and Eve and our first parents. It's all over the place. So I do want to encourage people out there, when the young people ask, were Adam and Eve real? I don't want to botch that question. I think we should answer, yes, they were real. 
But what I go into is how are they real? How are we going to understand this? And I kind of plucked from three magisterial uh, texts or sources, church sources, I should say. Um, two of them are definitely uh, magisterial in the first sense. And then, the, so I'll just say it's Council of Trent, which is, you know, very high, high magisterial teaching. We have Humani Generis, which is an encyclical by Pope Pius Twelfth in the 20th century. And then the third source is just the catechism, which is not necessarily its own magisterial document, but because it draws from so many things and cites so many things in the church, John Paul II has said it is a sure norm for teaching the faith. So you want to be able to affirm what's in the Catholic catechism. So, yeah, and, and I know people might make a few little quibbles about things here and there, uh, but those are my three sources for plucking out. Here's what the church says about Adam and Eve. One, there was a fall that refuels, that refers to a real event involving our first parents. Two, there was uh, the sin of Adam was in its origin one. Three, original sin was passed on to all, you know, as a result of that, that sin of Adam by propagation, not by imitation. Four, there was a sin actually committed by an individual Adam and which through generation is passed on to all. So some of these can sound a little bit redundant It's because I'm plucking out the wording from the official sources. So I might actually be able to redraw this list, Jake, in the future. I might see if I can condense it down to five. But then number five is, this is a big one, controversial one, but important one. All true men on earth after Adam take their origin through natural generation from him. And then six, Pope Pius is very Pope Pius the Twelfth is very clear about this. Evolution of the human body is possible, but God's special action is required for the creation of the human soul. And I think that last one, you really got to tell people that the Pope was saying that back in the 1950s, because they're going to be shocked. I mean, that was before, you know, all the kinds of, uh, you know, well, I guess there was some creation and evolution debates going back into the 1920s and so on, but we were still a very religious. Uh, society at that time. And people weren't all buying into this theory of evolution, which is still a bit new. But even at that time, the Pope is saying, yes, you know, this is possible that human bodies evolve. It doesn't negate, however, God's special action in creating the human soul. So I think if you affirm those things, those six items, you affirm what the church um, asks you to about Adam and Eve. Those are, there might be additional things, uh, but those I think are, are a core set of, of, of church teaching on Adam and Eve that you want to affirm in order to be, I phrase it as inbounds of Catholic teaching or to be compatible with Catholic teaching. There's probably more than those six things, um, but those are a good six core that are often taken to be in conflict with science. Gotcha. So, th so there was an Adam, there was an Eve, there was a real fall, though it may be in kind of metaphorical language, mm -hmm. stylized in a way. Um, there was a specific sin. So uh, what does it mean by in its origin uh, one? Do, do you kind of remember some of the context around? Yeah, that? that's a good question. That that comes from a canon at the Council of Trent. So the canons are the short kind of pithy phrases that they say at the end. Um, so I'd have to refer back to the actual text of the session. So I think it's the fifth session. So I'll have to look into that because I don't I don't remember if they're combating something specific there. But I will say what's ruled out by that is that there was, you know, thousands of people all committing their own sins, uh, or at least another view that's false. This might not be the one that Trent was, was rebutting at the time, but some people just say, well, original sin is what happens when humans just 
we all commit our first actual sins. Uh, or because we're all born with this proclivity to sin, we eventually sin and it's uh, reinstantiated in each of us every time that, that we sin. And that's not a Catholic view to say either that, you know, there were like thousands of people who were all committing, um, you know, a bunch of actual sins. And that was like the original sin. Or to say that like each time a person sins actually for the first time in their life, that's the original sin. That's not what Catholics mean by the original sin. No, there was one. So I think in its origin, one, meaning at the time of the fall, there was a single thing that happened, an action that Adam took, our covenant head, that uh, caused the fall. That was, quote unquote, Adam's first sin, not quote unquote, but Adam's first sin. And that's the cause of original sin being passed on to all. But I will have to look at the context, Jake. There might be something more specific that they're combating uh, with that canon. Gotcha. I know there's a wildly specific question. But like, no, no, it is interesting, it, though, because some of the phrasing is, is very specific. It kind of caught me off guard. I'm like, I wonder what they were defending against. Mm. Um, great. So, um, I mean, I, I guess for most of our listeners are going to know this, but um, if, if you want to describe a little bit about, um, you know, what original sin yeah. is, because we, we, we're going to be using that term a number of times. And uh, what is it, your, your fourth point is a sin is actually committed by an individual Adam and Eve and through generation it's passed to all. So what kind of thing can be passed through generation and, and so, so kind of explain what that is. Cause we might have a few people who are a little new to the. the yeah. Thing. And it's, it, it is a, it's a, it's a bit mysterious in a way when you first hear about it. And the, the, the big confusion that, that creeps up Jake, when people hear this is, and they usually hear it at baptism because when you're, either doing a baptism training, you're taught that, oh, the baby's about to be cleansed of original sin. And people are just very confused. Well, wait a minute, an infant can't commit sin. So how are they being cleansed from sin? And so here's the Catholic understanding. The Catholic understanding is not a strict um, guilt transfer that some Protestants, I would say, hold in maybe in a strict Calvinist tradition in certain places. They do really think the guiltiness that Adam had from committing his first sin is actually passed on to everyone into their account so that they are actually born guilty of committing the same sin that Adam did or with a guilty status that's as a result of Adam's sin. That's not the Catholic view. The Catholic view is more ontological in that original sin is understood as the deprivation of grace in our soul that we would have had had Adam and Eve not fallen away from God's friendship. So we understand that God created Adam and Eve in a special state of grace, that they not only had a nice, um, great integrity in their human nature, but that they were raised above that nature to enjoy this covenant of friendship with him. And Thomas Aquinas goes into a lot of details about how they had um, immortality and all this, these incredible features of what, what might have taken place. And some of that's a bit speculative, but we know for sure that they had a very special state of grace of friendship with God and that they were created in that state. They didn't have to do anything to earn it. He just made them that way. Nonetheless, in their probationary period, you know, they did choose freely to fall away. They chose to sin against God. They took the fruit of the tree, which was it a literal fruit? We don't know. Was it a pear? Was it an apple? We don't know that. It was Whatever a thing, John. I got a whole episode on it. <laughs> oh, you got a whole exactly. No, and I got to catch up on some of those. But whatever they did, they transgressed God's covenant in a serious way, and because of that, um, all of these curses and consequences are announced by God, and He no longer 
creates their progeny in that same state of grace. He doesn't take away their natural generative functions. They're still able to come together and multiply and pass down a human race. However, all the humans born after Adam are not created in that state of grace and friendship. But they would have been created in that state of grace and friendship had Adam and Eve not fell. And so the way the analogy I kind of always use for this is imagine your great grandfather was a very wealthy man and was set to give an incredible inheritance to not only his children, but his grandchildren and maybe even some to you as well. But when he gave that initial inheritance to his children, they all squandered it. And it was all gone. Even though more of it was supposed to be passed down, that next generation squandered it. That would be analogous to the fall. And therefore, you or your parents wouldn't see that wealth and gift that they would have had had it not been squandered by a previous generation. Nonetheless, they're not guilty of squandering it. And they're not born into debt because of that, or at least not necessarily so. Nonetheless, there is a real kind of sadness and deprivation of, wow, we could have had that, and we don't because of a real event that happened. That's more of like what original sin is. It's not that there was a guilt transfer of a guilty status, but that we're born deprived of original sin. And God is really the one who controls it, because you asked about generation. God's appointed that this is to happen, because he, remember the sixth thing I said uh, of what Catholics hold, God's special action is required for the creation of the human soul, not just when full humans first came about, but also each time a human is created. God's special action is there to make the human soul so that we're not just um, a mere animal nature. We have these higher powers of intellect and will, and we have this obediential potency. That's just a fancy term. That means we can be raised higher than our nature to share in God's friendship by grace. And so God has appointed in this order of providence that each time a new human being is created, he's going to be involved. And because God is involved and grace is not owed, it's gratuitous, God can choose to either, you know, give that special grace or not. And so in this order of providence, tied to the covenant he made with Adam and Eve, if they fell, it was then, you know, kind of what, what clicks into motion there is that each time the new generation comes about, is his special his special hand is still involved in creating the human soul, but it's not created with that influx of grace. So you can kind of picture it as this kind of very anthropomorphic, but God is like withdrawing that injection of grace that he would have delivered to each new generation um, at the point that the human was created. He would have just given the grace, given the grace, given the grace. But once that fall happened, he says, no, this is a serious transgression. And because of that, human beings are not born in that state of grace. Nonetheless, there's a rescue plan. And through baptism and through the grace of Jesus Christ, everybody can be raised to that state of grace. But that's my um, just kind of short explanation of what original sin is and how it gets passed down through generation. Now, there's more probably debate about the mechanics of how God does that and what, what exactly takes place at generation. But we can say confidently that, you know, human beings are still born in the natural way. God is involved and they don't come out automatically in that state of grace that they would have had had Adam and Eve never sinned. I, I, yeah, I think that's a great answer. I think some people will think, 
well then why do you call it sin like mm. it, but but here's the thing you know if you read the prophets i think it's jeremiah i think it's jeremiah who says both the sin of the father will be passed down to the third and fourth generation and also says in no way will the sin of the fathers be passed down to the next generations right so scripture says both of that so it means that sin can be taken in two different ways one which makes the first true and one which makes the second true and if you look at the the context of those you'll find that the effects of sin yes are indeed passed down and that's why the scripture does refer to the effects of sin as sin and it talks about it by by propagation Whereas the guilt of sin is not passed down to the next generation. So we are not guilty of the sin of Adam, but we do bear the effects of Adam's sin. Mm. And that deprivation of grace makes it uh, makes us uh, in need of baptism to be reconnected to God. No, that's a great point about how that word sin has a wide semantic range and is taken in much of senses. When you said that, I think effects of, effects of sin is spot on. And so that's why we got to explain it to people, though, because they think sin is just, which is right. They think sin is missing the mark, transgressing God's law, doing something immoral. And that's all true. And that's, that's absolutely right. But we need to teach our young people that there's also other ways words can be understood. And sin is also understood in original sin to refer to the effects of sin. And actually, even thinking of a New Testament passage, we have Christ becoming sin. He became sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that's 2 Corinthians 5, 17, or 521, actually. It's 21. But that's a controversial verse. People take it in different ways in atonement discussions. But Augustine takes it as he became sin, and sin refers to a sin offering. So that's a third way that the word might be understood. So just because you have the same word doesn't mean it's also automatically understood in the same sense. Atonement's a show for another day with another guest that I'm sure, and I think you've already done one, but you'll probably do more in the future. But I just want to say that's a great point about the different meanings of that word. Well, I think we just have one more thing to hit on the uh, list of uh, theological guardrails here. And this one really got me thinking, and it's kind of the subject of a lot of... um, um, I don't know, confusion. <laughs> it's the all true men on earth um, take their origin from natural generation from Adam. So what, is, what does it refer to when it means true men? Yes. So let me actually, um, I meant to pull up humanity generous exactly before we started here. So I'm just pulling that up now. But this is what the Pope says. And what he means is if you read him in context, he's talking about the evolution of the human body being possible in the paragraph before. And then he gets to this paragraph where he's talking about Adam and Eve and how we can't affirm polygenism, which we'll get to a little bit later with the different theories. And so in context, what the Pope is talking about, as I read him, is that because evolution of the human body is possible, we can hold that there was this, um, you know, long process that produced more and more advanced primates over the years so that, and this will get into one of the solutions that we're getting to later, there came a point when there were human-like animals or animals that would, you know, for all intents and purposes, quite similar physiologically and anatomically to what would become Adam and Eve or the, the real human race. However, they were still animal in their nature. And they didn't have a rational soul. They didn't have rational freedom. They didn't have all of our faculties of 
intellect and will. And so as I read the Pope here, if you read both Humanity Generous 36 and then 37 back to back, what he's saying is that the true men on earth after Adam, so let's set aside that there might've been human-like uh, living creatures um, before Adam and Eve, or there might've, and this will get into another thing later, there, there was this view uh, it might take us a bit of our field here, but there were some people who posited maybe there was a whole another human race that lived and died out well before Adam on Earth. Or it's kind of similar to when people say maybe there's a whole other rational race on another planet in another galaxy somewhere that we don't know about that. As I read the Pope, he's excluding all of those from the true men on Earth after Adam. He's talking about all of the human beings connected to Adam and Eve by God's covenant with them, which excludes uh, animals that were not fully human in the sense of having intellect and will and rational freedom, and also excludes races on another planet, and would also exclude if, if it were to happen. Um, I actually don't think philosophically that it would have been possible without God's action, but that there were like a, a race of human beings like millions of years before Adam and Eve that spawned and then died out before their time and there was no overlap chronologically between them. I think in that statement, the Pope is excluding all of those possibilities. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I guess we have a bunch of, uh, uh, you know, we can probably buzz through the, the scientific criteria pretty quickly. Um, most of the yeah, there's three. Do you want to read the three theses or I, I can read them as well. I just picked out three things that students are going to learn in school. Sure. If you want to go through, go for it. Okay. One, the universe and earth are billions of years old. Two, and this is quoted from the Next Generation Science Standards, common ancestry, common ancestry and biological evolution are supported by several lines of empirical evidence. Additionally, species originate by descent with modification from previously existing species, end quote. So that's what all biology teachers in public schools across the country are going to be backing up that thesis and presenting it to ninth and 10th grade biology students. And then third, this became more popular in the 90s uh, with, with various articles, but modern humans originally came from a population of at least several thousand individuals. And that's because it's posited that you need to have several thousand in order to get the right variation um, in our genetic code so that we can have what we find today as far as DNA and genetic variation. If there weren't thousands at the beginning, if there were only two, we wouldn't get enough genetic variation. That's the claims of modern science. Yep. And um, I mean, we, we let's see, I have an episode a while back. It's about a young earth creationism versus atheistic evolution. And I would point people back if they're curious about the age of the earth and some different arguments about uh, evolution. Um, the, the one that I find most compelling in support of this first premise that the earth is billions of years old is um, we have a variety of geochemical ways of dating mm. the earth and they overlap and they're independent mm. and the one that blew my mind and this one i think is absolutely just like nail in the coffin for those who hold a young earth is that during the age of atomic exploration we synthesized new never before made elements here on earth and before we did it we were able to look at the number of protons and neutrons the different forces internal to the atom and then we could mathematically estimate what their half-lives would be many of them would only survive for a few seconds in a lab but we could figure this out a priori 
based on what we know of physics. Mm -hmm. And then we created them sometimes years later in the lab. And we saw that our formulas held. They were predictive of our measured half-life for these. So when we go back and apply these formulas to known things, uh, to the, what is it, 50, 60 different types of dating techniques, that's mm -hmm. an independent and matching verification. So I think that all Christians ought to accept that the earth is in fact measured to be billions of years old. And I don't even take that strong of a stance in this article, but Jake, that more power to you because you know more of the science than I do. But what I'm saying is the church actually would permit a young earth view, an old earth view, an evolution yep, view. Yep. And what I want to do is say, okay, but let's say we're, we're dealing with these students who are going to be presented with this modern scientific view. What are the models that are compatible both with church teaching and with modern science? But just to, to that point about the young earth view, I, there was a really good episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World where he went into young earth creationism, a bunch that I found very helpful because I know what they say about a lot of those dating techniques, the, the common rebuttal is just, yes, but that's assuming uniformitarianism, which says that, um, you know, those rates and things that you're describing in the half-lifes were constant throughout time. And they think the flood and the catastrophic flood um, might've just messed up all of that. So that any kind of rate that we assume that we know and try to take it back to, um, before the flood or before those times, they say that that's an invalid assumption. And so therefore that's how they nullify a lot of the dating techniques. Now, personally, I am not convinced by that. And I think Jimmy Aiken makes a good case of, of how to respond to it, but I just wanted to note that. Right. Yeah. And, and I, I think that the science doesn't know everything, not even close. And particularly with regards to evolution, mm -hmm. oh, there's enormous gaps in our knowledge, enormous. And I think that we actually do have to, uh, to uh, take seriously what Thomas Aquinas talked about, about the role of angelic governance. Um, and I kind of talked about that in the episode a little bit. But yeah, I, Can think I just say one other thing about that. That's that's good. Real briefly. And I, I'm with you on that. And I definitely don't claim I don't want people to take away from this article that I'm saying mainstream science is unquestionable or that it's unassailable. It right. is not. It's definitely not. And I'm very interested in, in challenging it in, in various ways. And I'm interested in how these views might be challenged. And I think people should follow the evidence where it leads. I just want to say, but let's assume we just take all these views at face value as well-supported and true theories. Can we still say that our Catholicism is compatible with them? And yes, we can. Excellent. Yeah, definitely digressing here a little bit. But to digress a little bit more, fun fact, they have done uh, similar dating techniques to rocks which come from the moon. And the moon was broken off from the earth very early on, and it would not have experienced the flood. Ooh. So if I was, yeah. So if I was to answer a young earth creationist charge about that, I'd say, okay, can we agree that the moon could be an independent test? That is a good point. So, okay, but we're digressing. We're digressing. We enjoy these, but um, let's jump into the theories. Um, yes. I, I figured that the, uh, the Kemp theory could be the, the first one we hit. Um, I'm trying to kind of have them in my head. I seem to remember that that was my favorite. Um, but if, if you can kind of lay out, how does that fit with the data that we've presented so far? Um, do you like this one or is there another one? That yeah, this actually is my favorite one as well. So it's nice to go right to the, to the good one in case we don't have time to get to all the other ones. But this is exactly. my favorite as well. So Kenneth Kemp wrote a 2011 article where he laid out this view. And his proposal is we can distinguish 
man as a biological species and as a philosophical or theological species. The biological species is includes all human beings and all human individuals that are reproductively compatible, but may or may not have a special rational soul. Whereas the philosophical species of man, they all do have that rational soul infused by God. And if he makes them with an eternal destiny, which in this order of providence he does, he uses theological species for that as well. So philosophical and theological can kind of go together, even though they didn't have to, as a good Thomist, I would say they don't have to be coextensive. God didn't have to make us with an eternal destiny of the beatific vision that was given gratuitously by grace. But in this order of providence, that is what happened. So what Kemp says, you can have these hominids or these um, early uh, human-like animals that were anatomically very similar to us, but lacked a rational soul. And what he's trying to do with this view is explain how we can affirm the statement that there can be thousands of individuals from whom our population came from, yet Pius XII says, yeah, but there was only two. There was Adam and Eve, and through Adam, all true men on earth after him gained their origin from natural generation through him. Kemp's trying to square that and say how you can have thousands and how you can have two. And the way he does that is to make this distinction. He says you could have had thousands who were genetically and anatomically very similar to human beings, but that didn't have the full rationality of the human soul. And then at some point, God reached down and endows two individuals with those rational souls and creates them in his friendship. So, and actually Pope Benedict the 16th um, has a quote where he was thinking about this in the 1960s. And Kemp also cites another uh, priest, David Alexander, who was thinking about this in the 1960s. This is a view that's been around for a while, but Kemp kind of formalized it. And he said, the way we can affirm thousands is to say, yes, there were thousands of biological human beings, but there were only two philosophical or rational human beings at the beginning. And as long as you make that um, distinction, you can then allow that those two rational human beings fell out of God's grace. Maybe they interbreeded with other human beings that were biologically compatible with them that didn't have a rational soul. We can talk about that. There's an objection that goes with that. And that's how the genetics was kind of passed down further. But that'll give us enough to affirm the scientific hypothesis that we came from an original population of thousands um, and also affirm the theological fact that we came from originally two human beings. And Kemp, does not, Kemp is not dogmatic about when this occurred. When he first wrote this article, I got the impression a lot of people were thinking 50 to 100,000 years ago. But in more of his recent writings, he's, he's, he's not dogmatic at all about that time period. He just says that's a possible way it could have happened. Right. And I don't think we need to be dogmatic about about the dates. No, um, I think it's interesting. Some of the evidence about like mitochondrial Eve and why chromosomal Adam. And I definitely invite anybody listening to research that and let us know what you find. Um, but because I haven't really stayed up on that stuff. But, yeah, I don't think we need to to set a specific date. I like Kent's theory because it's actually very simple. I yes. it, clearly fitting the scientific and theological data. I, it seems very probable. Um, it, it, the one thing is, well, wait a minute, if there's only one couple, how can it be through natural generation? But I mean, to me, that seems pretty easy. Like I have a lot of cousins, you know, if my cousin Sam is listening, he listens from time to time. We 
are descendant from the same uh, Ken Batchelder. We have the same grandfather. Mm -hmm. So through natural generation, we, we have come from the same grandfather. But on the other side, it's different. So if they interbred with an early uh, a group during a time of a population bottleneck, then very quickly every single person would have them as a great, 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 great grandfather. So they are part of natural generation. I agree with that. And I would say also that after and part of Kemp's article, he does say that after a time, it would make sense that the non-rational human-like animals um, would not be able to be sustained as a species. Whereas the rational ones with all these much more advanced powers uh, of intellect and will, that they would persist and through survival of the fittest, they go on and there aren't any left of these close to human beings, but not fully rational human beings any further. So there only would have been a short-ish time on the grand scheme of the circle of life or the whole timeline of human history. There's only a kind of a short time of overlap. Again, he's not dogmatic about any of those dates. How long was the overlap? I don't know. Was it a thousand years? Was it a few hundred years? Was it less than that? I'm not sure. But after they all died out, then we only have rational beings going forward. Makes sense to me. Um, and I will add that most scientists do affirm at least one strong population bottleneck. Um, I talked to one fellow who said that it could have been uh, down to as low as 600 mating pairs at one point. And this should be no surprise because we do have that can be like a catalyst for very fast evolutionary uh, changes or not necessarily. Well, yes, evolutionary changes, but it's a means of sorting out pre-existing DNA to get uh, novel adaptations. An example is when you breed dogs, you typically bring them into a population bottleneck mm. in order to get these new breeds and these novel characteristics. So um, if God was seeking to uh, bring us to a place where we would need these novel characteristics bodily in order to house this new rational spirit that he's endowing us with, then we should expect from um, from the Christian view that there'd be a population bottleneck that's consistent with what we see um, from science. And it would be the perfect place to put our Adam and Eve because they would very quickly um, uh, interbreed with everybody who was living on Earth at that time. No, I think that's a good point. I, I really think we got to teach this to our students. There's no way that I think Catholics in the 21st century all should have heard of Kemp's proposal before they hear, before they get to evolution in biology class in high school. I don't think there's any reason that we can't present it to them before they get all the evidence for evolution. Because if they just had this in the back of their mind, then there's just no major cognitive dissonance that's forced to arise. Yes, definitely. A, a George W. Bush style preemptive strike. <laughs> yep, yep. That, that's what we definitely got to do to inoculate people against uh, this type of uh, reductionism and skepticism. I mean, there's no reason for it. Um, so, so there was, um, I can think of the one objection, which I think popped up in your article, and that is uh, people are worried about this whole idea of rational animals mating with non-rational animals. Isn't this some type of... Uh, uh, bestiality like these other people really aren't people like us so what would Kemp say what, what yeah, would he, he has, say to that it's a it's a, it's an objection that comes up a lot he has two responses to it and you can even hear him talk about this on my show classicaltheism.com slash Kemp we talk about it but first he says it's not bestiality in the formal sense that's not the right form of the action because those non-rational humans 
are reproductively compatible with the rational humans. So bestiality concerns like reproductive acts with a lower species that one is not reproductively compatible with. So he says the acts would be more akin to, you know, an impersonal or casual sexual acts than they would to bestiality, which is sinful. But that's the, the second thing about this is we know that a consequence of the fall is that men are plunged into sin. And we have this proclivity to sin, having transgressed God's covenant. And so it's not surprising that there would be um, perhaps this, this reproduction going on, this impersonal uh, reproduction going on with these non-rational adults, uh, animals, because that would be a type of sin. And given our fallen nature is going to um, fall prey to various kinds of temptations and sins, it's not surprising that we would see uh, non-rational, or sorry, that we would see the rational human beings or the true men after Adam going after these non-rational human beings, perhaps as a, you know, in a form of lustful temptation. So that's Kemp's reply. First, it's not bestiality. And second, it's not surprising because sin abounds. Oh, I, yeah, I didn't, I, I really like that one. I, I didn't think of that. Yeah. This wasn't God's original plan, right? <laughs> I mean, exactly. I mean, this is the result of the fall that, that that happened. Who knows what God would have done? I mean, he could have uh, continued the story in a variety of ways, but but we chose to break from the plan. So no surprise, even if this charge does hold, it sounds like with this hypothesis, we would just shrug and go, yeah, I know, right? And Cain killed Abel and the whole thing came apart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right so okay yeah i think that's that's really good and and you know you, you I, though i don't even think uh, there is the other way that you mentioned that well reproduction is biological that one of the theological tenets was that it's god who brings about the rational soul um so the, our participation has always been a uh, a physical participation and god has endowed the rational spirit specially created and you know what, can I raise one more flavor of that objection that gets into what Suarez and Craig say? Because I know we're running short on time, but I'll try oh, to sure. read this. Okay. Because I think Suarez poses the most difficult objection for Kemp's account. I asked Kemp about this when he was on my show. Because he says, okay, not only, it's not just the problem that there was the this quote-unquote bestiality or these casual acts, which Kemp says is not really bestiality. The major problem is that they would have had babies. You would have a rational man, let's say, and a non-rational female creature. They have a baby that's rational. And Suarez says it was it's inappropriate for their, this to take place. And there couldn't be a sustained moral and legal order in, in this society where there were these non-rational human beings living with these rational human beings. And Kemp replies to that on my show in more detail, but I will just say, so Suarez, his proposal is there were there are no non-rational human beings after the sin of Adam. So he says he doesn't like that, the, um, the stuff I just described. So to get around that, he says when Adam and Eve sinned, God did a special miracle where he raised all the human beings in existence, all the biological human beings in existence. He raised them all to have a rational soul. So there were no longer at that moment any other non-rational human beings. That's Suarez's proposal. Now, unfortunately, it's not clear to me that that squares with what the Pope is saying, because he says all true men after Adam take their origin by natural generation from him. 
And I don't think Suarez has that natural generation retained. Um, I think and he, he tries to explain this by saying, well, hey, wait a minute, though. We say that you can have in vitro fertilization and that's not natural generation. And yet still we can have full human beings born through in vitro. So my view of this special miracle can also count as well. But I don't think that's a good analogy because even in in vitro fertilization, there is biological ascent, sorry, biological descent is retained because you still have the sperm and egg being brought together. Whereas on Suarez's view, you have kind of this exotic miracle that after Adam and Eve fall, God reaches down and raises all humans to rationality. I don't think it's beyond the power. I think it's totally within God's power to have done something like that. I just don't think it squares with the papal teaching. So then I will say, but there still might be people who don't like the uh, interbreeding results from the Kemp hypothesis that who are really concerned with Suarez's point about the moral and legal order, but they don't want to go Suarez's way on the, um, on the answer to that question with that special miracle that's kind of iffy if it's really in balance with church teaching. And so for those people, I would give William Lane Craig's and Dennis Bonnet's proposal uh, that they defend. And so Craig has a whole book about this in quest of the historical Adam. Um, you, can, you can dive into it. He goes into a lot of detail. But essentially what he does, and Dennis Bonnet in a Catholic article does the same thing, is they say as long as you place Adam far back enough in the timeline, more ancient than we originally thought, maybe 500,000 to a million years ago, he cites archaeological evidence where he thinks these people might have been rational back then. As long as you place them that far back, Adam and Eve, then you could have just had two. And you didn't need to have interbreeding. And there still would have been enough time for the genetic diversity to unfold so that we have the genetic diversity that we have now. And so for people who really don't like the interbreeding scenario, I would then offer what Craig and Bonnet are arguing. You just have a more ancient Adam and you don't need to posit any of the interbreeding. But for people who really want to see how Kemp responds to it in more detail, check out the show that I did with him. Uh, we did a couple shows on the matter, Jake, that I could send you the links for. Awesome. Yeah, that'd be great. And I'll put them in there. Well, we, we got to, uh, to, to wrap up cause, uh, you're, I believe you're just about out of time. Yes. Um, I apologize yeah. for that. No, I'm in my parents' basement for the <laughs> listeners who don't know. And my daughter, they're babysitting her upstairs, but I need to, uh, I need to cut out in a couple of minutes. Gotcha. So I'll, let me just make uh, one more point. We'll, we'll link to the article, of course, and then, uh, you can give any other, uh, kind of kind of closing comments and of course uh talk about uh where people can find you but as far as the interbreeding hypothesis um i think we have we have locked down scientific evidence that uh people interbred with neanderthals and the davisons and the you name it (laughs) like at every point of uh differential human evolution it seems like they found each other well can i say so craig actually holds that neanderthals are rational so that's a controversial point so he 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 makes that argument in his book so he places adam and eve back before that yeah and i think that i think that's that's fair enough it's debatable it's debatable though under the kemp theory if we're kind of criticizing that i think we could probably say well we do have evidence that there was interbreeding if we don't hold to, to craig's view that they were all rational right well well, awesome, John. Well, uh, let's see. Any other closing thoughts you have? And then if you want to let people uh, know where they can find you. Yes, you can go to classicaltheism.com. Listen to the Classical Theism podcast for the Kemp episode, classicaltheism.com slash Kemp. But Jake, thanks so much for having me on. I would just love if the listeners got something out of this episode or the article, if they could go share it with some teenagers 
or some middle schoolers or some Catholic young people and tell them that science and Catholicism are fully compatible. That way they're well equipped going forward. So I think we've got to get this message out there. And I really appreciate you having me on to explain some of this stuff. Well, great to have you. Thanks, John.